listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. So just as kind of a reminder, when the Buddha was asked, what is enlightenment? He said it was the end of suffering. The rest is our work. Once the suffering ends, how we move through the world, that's our work. And uncovering that place where there is no more suffering, where there is nothing that is defended, where there is just total expanse, is achievable within this lifetime. It's real simple for the ego to look at the idea of reincarnation, not to say that it exists or doesn't exist. I don't know. I don't remember my past lives. And uh, people that do, um, you know, God bless them, but I, I don't know that um, uh, it always surprises me how many people used to be Julius Caesar or Cleopatra in their past lives. Ne that's ne really neither here nor there. The point is that reincarnation, whether it happens or not, it is a great thing for ego to kind of cling on to. That the end of suffering isn't possible in this life, but in my next life, with all the good karma that I've thrown at the world, my next life will be the one where I'm enlightened. Well, that just reifies the delusion because awakening will never happen in the future. It won't happen in the past. It always happens in the right now. So the minute our meditation begins to kind of open us to that expanse of the right now, the minute we kind of start to go between that thought that comes up that's about the future and that thought that comes up that is about the past and then that space between those thoughts is the here and now it is the present moment it's nothing other than that so kind of mining if you will that with our observing presence mining that space between the thoughts watching that gap go from just a little bit to more and more and more and more the more we meditate we begin to kind of fill that space it's like we've been given a new set of clothes that we can grow into. And from that space, there is an eventual end to suffering. There is an end to suffering that comes out of that experience as we allow it in. And we do that with consciousness. We do that with our full mind and our full body. So another way of articulating what awakening is, or what enlightenment is, as the Buddha said, it's the end of suffering. I think that's a great way of describing it. It's also um, we could also look at awakening as being the release from any holding we might have.
We let go of our greed. We let go of our aversion. We let go of any holding we have either to this or not to this. We just let go. This does not mean we push away. It means we just release. And in this release, I mean, really what we're talking about here is the ultimate in forgiveness. We give for all, ourselves and everyone else. We begin to see that the boundary between self and other is mind created. And as we've let go kind of all those mind creations, those preferences, those attachments, as we begin to let go of those, we start recognizing ourselves through the eyes of others. We start recognizing that it's all one thing. And in that process, this release, this surrendering to what is continually is just the ultimate in forgiveness. We don't hold anything against anyone else. We don't hold anything against ourselves. We don't hold anything at all. And in doing this, we open. Just like when we begin to forgive our parents for screwing us up so badly. We get to the point where we recognize, hey, actually, you know what? They were doing the best they could. And with what they had, man, they didn't do such a bad job. We, of course, reach this usually after the age of uh, 35 or so. <laughs> it depends on the person. But I'm always uh, uh, struck by how much more intelligent my mom and dad see, how much more wise they seem now than when I was 19. Forgiveness, letting go, letting go of whatever that story is, letting go of whatever identity it is that we may be really gripping. So that's freedom. That's liberation. Forgiving everyone, everything, and accepting everything that arises with our full attention and then acting. Accepting doesn't mean, by the way, we have to like it. Liking it is just a preference. It just means that whatever arises, we meet that with our full attention and then respond from that place of openness, from forgiveness. Sometimes that might sound like no. Other times it might sound like yes. Other times it might sound like maybe. It could be any potential potential choice. It's infinite potentiality. I've heard that described. That's the response that can be offered from that place of openness. Now suffering, on the other hand, is a very, very simple byproduct of holding. So if awakening is release, suffering is brought about by our holding. And anything that our mind can grasp Anything that we can get our mind around has the opportunity for holding. It usually catches us. Paradoxically, it also 
has the opportunity or at least gives us the opportunity to let go our choice there when it becomes conscious when we can choose well I'll either let go of this or grab on this is a wonderful sign it's a wonderful realization that usually happens the deeper the silence becomes within our hearts and minds through a stillness practice so holding really is just a resistance to what the universe is offering us at any given moment I like I don't like I want I don't want when we are tipping in that very simple you know two-dimensional space it's literally I look at it as almost like two-dimensional our contracted sense of self or our ego tends to move just um, I've described it as an etch-a-sketch you know you can you you can only move and you know I want I, I don't want I do I don't you know it's it's, it's binary But this resistance to life's offerings, we can we can show it can show up in in our mind and in our body. So with our thoughts, our thoughts can generate themselves. They can roll snowball, if you will, into opinions, and then these opinions can continue their roll into beliefs, and they can furthermore become even more powerful with more inertia, more momentum, and become convictions. And convictions that we may have are holdings. They generate suffering. And this is so difficult for egos to hear. Because, wait a minute, I've got a conviction, and that conviction is I'm not going to kill. Okay? Okay, that might be kind of a, a nice conviction. Ever? You will never kill. If you decide you will never, ever, ever kill, okay, then isn't that an attachment? I'm guessing all of you can see that this can get to be very, very dangerous because this is exactly what allowed monks in World War II to put themselves into Japanese zeros and crash them into aircraft carriers. I mean, there's there a huge part of the Japanese army was actually made up of Zen monks. No convictions, nothing matters. Well, that nihilism right there is actually the opposite of surrender. Instead of being open to whatever arises, we cling to I will never or I, you know, I will always, or I will. There's the I, there's the doing, the will, which is very egoic, and then the activity, all in the service of what the mind thinks is the Buddhist, Buddha's teachings. The Buddha taught that awakening is the end of suffering. This is achieved when we begin to study our thoughts. We study this process as the thoughts begin to move into opinions, begin to move into belief structures, begin to move into convictions, and we see with increasing intensity how our mind works to grasp onto tighter, tighter, and tighter until we're actually suffering because of our fundamentalism.
this can happen with our ideas. We can also have it happen to our feelings. Our feelings can escalate just like this. The snowball begins when it's just a feeling. This is where the mind meets the body. Or whatever is going on in the mind meets the body and then there's a feeling. From that feeling, we then move into an emotion. And that emotion can either be positive or negative. When it's negative, it then becomes pain. And pain generally turns into fear. And then fear gives rise to all sorts of craziness, hatred, and so forth. So when it's infused with any type of negativity at the emotional level, remember we go from feelings, the mind meets the body, we go to feelings, we then go into emotion. From the emotion, we can then, if it's negative, go into pain. And then if we're in pain, we can oftentimes just go straight into fear. When we cling to this, when we want to avoid that, what are we doing? We're perpetuating suffering, not meeting the end of suffering. Just like when we get into a conviction, the fundamentalism of a conviction. Instead of the end of suffering, we're actually generating suffering. So what's the antidote? Because there is one, and it's very simple. This is the typical habitual way that human beings go through their lives. Enlightenment is not typical. It is not habitual yet. Okay. The antidote is to become deeply aware of where we hold. What kind of thoughts do we cling to? What kind of feelings do we cling to? Even if we cling to a feeling that's quite wonderful, if we're clinging to it, since all things are temporary, including thoughts and feelings, when the feeling goes away, what happens? We feel pain. And that pain can sometimes then give rise to yet again fear and so forth. Someone took it away from us. They might do it again. That fear becomes hatred. You get the idea. Watch that. Watch that process. In the watching of that process, see if you can fearlessly meet whatever is with total relaxation. That's the way my teacher used to say it. He used to say, meet whatever is happening with total relaxation. Don't go after it. Don't push it away. Meet it. Let there be meeting constantly. And in that open space of meeting, there is a field where we can begin to play instead of fight. So we accept what is, then we act. We can either, at that point, change the situation. We can leave the situation. Or we can totally surrender to it. Changing and leaving would be preferences, although they might be absolutely appropriate. They might be the appropriate response. And when asked, what is Buddha? A great way of saying, defining that is an appropriate response to whatever shows up. So watch the holding, accept what is, and then act. 
from that spacious, open surrender. And three, by watching and accepting what is arising in life, we generate this very, very deep attention. And this very attention is exactly what is unheld. It is totally free. It is totally free of the typical contractions of mind and body. It is totally undefended, as I've said before. So we recognize that all of this is forgiveness. Go deeply into the body at every single chance you get. How does it feel? Not what do you think about it, but how does it really feel? Start conversations from that level of sensitivity. Where are you really in the conversation? Are you from a place of holding? Or are you coming from a place that is open and observant and curious? And this is how we express ourselves fully. This is an honesty, a deep honesty. And intimacy is nothing other than heightened or accentuated honesty. So with this accentuated honesty, we develop a deeper and deepening intimacy with all things, all situations, all feelings, all convictions, all pain, all horror, all love, all beauty. And from here we can reestablish what we might call a very open and surrendered ownership of an authenticity in each of us that springs from stillness, which is none other than spirit, which is none other than the end of suffering. Um, you were saying that you, you were saying that you start out with um, a feeling, and moves to emotion, moves to conviction, and there. Actually, the thinking goes to conviction, but the feeling, then. Did you, you want me to unpack? Well, those? I, I, yeah. That my question was, you know, then. It's, so as soon as I have a feeling, I'm on a, you know, tricky little path that takes me to conviction. But, yeah. So what do I do? I have study those feelings feeling. and I get these emotions. Oh, okay. What happens when you study the feeling? Rather than being whipped around by it or carried off by it, if we have the presence of being to get right there with it, not against it and not blown away by it, but right there with it, what happens is it has a very difficult time carrying us all the way through the end to fear, anger, hatred. It has a very, very difficult time taking us there. Anger, hatred, and so forth really come up then as a uh, process from unconsciousness. Okay, but I mean, 
so you have a feeling we have many many every day yeah um and maybe i'm not maybe this isn't right but i have the sense that i don't go to that place of fear or that uh, yeah, i know i'm not into conviction quite as quickly as it sounds like you might be i mean i may be into motion emotion um and i don't see that as necessarily a path to conviction it, and okay what keep am i missing conviction is mind mm-hmm. emotion is body Conviction is the outcropping oh, okay. of a deeper and deeper contraction from thought, mm-hmm. is born at thought. Mm-hmm. From thought, then our process goes on to belief, I think is the way I described it, belief. And then from belief, we move on into deeper and deeper spaces until we get to conviction. Okay. Actually, I think it was thought, opinion, belief, yeah, conviction. Right, right. That's right. mind. Mm-hmm. A conviction is built on mind, okay? An opinion, you know, it's it's an intense opinion. Mm-hmm. But when that intense opinion then gives birth to itself in the body, okay, that conviction then can be felt in the form mm-hmm. of usually anger. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's something we defend against. You, you know, right. here's my conviction. Boom. Watch, watch me defend it, right, mm-hmm. in the body. And so as we begin to study our thoughts that give rise to these convictions, we then can unpack and study, if you will, the feelings that give rise to fear, rage, hatred, greed, delusion, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope, that, hope yeah. that helps a little bit. I just separated them in, into the, the two, mind-body. Um, having an open relationship with mind-body really affects this process of ending suffering. We just get curious about it. <laughs> Great question. One thing that's coming up for me, um, or that I'm noticing, is also the relationship between language and um, something I've actually been studying for quite some time, but one of the things that brings me to this practice is simple observation of my cats, Mm -hmm. um, how present they seem to be and aware, and um, just noticing from that how often I'm not present and aware because I have this like chatter and language going on in my head, which doesn't allow me to be present and what you're saying is response able. Exactly. Um, And so it's just interesting to, you know, recognize um, that I'm very good at that practice of being mental and that it takes also practice to be still and to meditate. And that's just a, a practice that I haven't cultivated very much of. Um, and the one thing that I'm noticing as I'm meditating is I sort of have this running commentary going on in my head 
which, you know, last time you said something about a lot of what, what that chatter is about is judgment, um, memory, past or, or future plan. Right. But there's also this piece that's kind of like a running commentary on what's happening right now. I don't know if that's something that you notice. Sure. Yeah, well, if it's if it's a running commentary on what is happening right now, the running commentary, if it has words to it, um, I like to describe it as ego trying to wear the Buddha's robe. Mm -hmm. Okay. The observing mind can begin to articulate itself, but it's not a running commentary. It's very event specific. The observing mind, which that you're articulating, is as you as you begin to watch the past, something from the past, the only label that is necessary for the observing mind, actually there's no label necessary for the observing mind, but if it wants to, about the extent of it is past or mm -hmm. memory. And then it's still totally present like a cat waiting for what happens next. Boom, what, what arises? Ah, future. Or plan. Or as my teacher in Thailand used to say, cooking. You're cooking. Stop cooking. When you sit, just sit. No cooking. Right? Mm -hmm. So the cat is such a great way of describing it. Um, I had one cat that I'm convinced was enlightened. It was a remarkable, remarkable, remarkably present animal. And unlike most of the cats I had, he was totally gentle. He would watch birds instead of go after them. <laughs> you know, it's so funny to watch. But the, the, the point that I'm just trying to make here is that, that as long as that observing mind is chattering, we're still on the inside. Mm -hmm. Okay? If... You, the trick, though, the, the, the key to getting out of that is just, whoa, chatter. Mm -hmm. It's just something that I observe. It's not, you know, I do have, like, these little tiny moments of nothing. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I think my ego doesn't like that. It's not, I think, I, that's what I think. It, it, it's more comfortable being in... Your, your ego hates that. Yeah. And you want to know why? It has a conviction there. Mm -hmm. It's very fundamentalist on this whole issue of space mm -hmm. and stillness. Because in that space and that stillness, it does not exist. Mm -hmm. Now, the deeper we get into practice, the more ego begins to recognize what's going on. And it's going to try to come through the back door to keep us from going any further. And this is why... I think I even mentioned it to you last week. This is why Sangha is so important. You know, it's, it's what, because we, it's like we have permission to go through hard times together because we're all doing it on the same path. And it doesn't mean that, you know, we, you know, the person we sit next to here or here, we have to go out and have coffee with them afterwards. It's just, we're here together. We're all on the same path. We are spiritual friends. This Sangha actually creates a container and a support that is really powerful. That said, you could do this in your apartment. You really could. It's just Sangha is a shortcut. Teachers, when they're good, are shortcuts. The teaching itself, when it's good, 
is a shortcut. So the triple jewel there, the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, it's the ultimate shortcut towards awakening within this life. I don't know what Sangha means. But oh, group. Okay. I'm sorry. means group. Sangha means group. Okay. Now the group can be either those of us in this room. Mm -hmm. It could also be the people in our town. It can also extend to the entire globe. Just depends on your point of reference. The more awake we become, the more settled in stillness we find ourselves, the more it's global. Okay. And just our sitting group on Monday nights or Wednesday nights or whatever. Thanks. I have a question about um, last week we talked about intention mm -hmm. and I've been thinking about that and you were saying that your intention should be way out there, which would be the global perspective, right? And my question is, we're all trying to accept, forgive, we're all, and that's all happening within us, very personal. Mm -hmm. If by chance we end suffering inside ourselves and become enlightened how is that going to affect the world out there miraculously <laughs> okay <laughs> that would be great yeah wouldn't it i don't know you don't know either huh? of course not i mean i can see getting to this point but all of a sudden it seemed to be very selfish like it can be. Can it can be. There's a real subtle narcissism that can creep into the whole process if we're not careful. And that's why in, in uh, various traditions we have, like for instance, in the Old Testament, we have the old Ten Commandments. You have a very strict ethical code so that no matter how open you become in this process, you still have to function in the world, right, by the mm -hmm. Ten Commandments or in Buddhism. We function by the, you know, the ten precepts. Sometimes we, we work them down to five. Basically, you can take all 108 from the, you know, from the, the old style, Theravada and Tripitaka, I think we call that. Actually, you can take it down to ten. You can squeeze it, believe it or not, down into one. And that is, I will not harm. All mm -hmm. right? Now in this process of having this kind of this ethical code, this structure, if you will, we can transcend the structure yet include it as we live in the world. So what do we get when someone is in that space, who lives in that space? What effect did Mother Teresa have on this world? What effect did Christ have on this world? Mm -hmm. They what affected they touched they touched lives mm -hmm. and ultimately at our death our funeral still i love this quote still depends on the weather you know the number of people at our funeral still depends on the weather but if we can touch lives we can affect 
loves actualization. We can actualize love just by letting someone cut in front of us at the store. They must be in more of a rush than we are. It doesn't mean you become all mushy, wishy-washy, namby-pamby, but it means that you consciously engage in the world from a position of love. You have nothing to defend. You have nothing to fear. You're just buying your groceries. You're just going to the voting booth. You're but, just... Which could have an impact on one other person at some time. It could also then affect the people that they mm -hmm. contact and so on and so on and mm -hmm. so on. It can be this, you know, exponential growth curve. Mm -hmm. But we don't know. Mm -hmm. I will say, though, that the tradition of just meditating in a cave until you get enlightened for yourself doesn't make much uh, sense to this 21st century guy. It seems to me that the most important gift is to ascend the mountain and come right back home. Mm -hmm. And practice. And pr keep practicing. Mm -hmm. Perpetually. Mm -hmm. Perpetually work with the now. Mm -hmm. And others in this now. And that can't help but transform. It cannot help but transform the world in which we live. Mm -hmm. All right. So we'll give it a shot. We'll start okay? here. Start here. Right. All right, team. <laughs> All right, team. Go. <laughs> Thanks for coming tonight. Appreciate it. <laughs> Hike.